Amen. It really is all about you, Lord, because without you, we could do nothing. Without you, we'd have no hope. We'd have no life. And Lord, I pray that we live our lives reminded of that constantly, that it is all about you. It's not all about what we want, our will, our plans, our desires. But Lord, it's knowing your heart. It's knowing you and making you known to a world that so desperately needs you. We pray right now as we go to your word, again, may your spirit minister to our hearts. May you be our teacher. May man decrease that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a seat. Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 24. And again, if you didn't grab a Bible earlier, please do that now. If you need one, raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible. Continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Um, Two weeks when uh, the Pregnancy Resource Center guy is here, that's for everybody, really, because even if you have small kids or grandchildren, a lot of what's being taught in our schools is tragic. And a lot of times we're just so oblivious, we don't know, and it'll be a really good time for you. I I won't be here, I'm going to be at the Senior Pastors Conference down in Southern California. Uh, I thought it'd be a good time for him to come. Uh, You know, it's hard for me to be here and not teach, what can I tell you? You know what I'm saying? When I'm here, I I like to teach the Word, so when I'm not in town, then that's when someone can come. But I want to encourage you, and I'm going to grab the tape. So let's take a look at Numbers 24, and we're going to look at another chapter on this this guy that's kind of an enigma in the Bible, a man by the name of Balaam. And just to catch us up again, as we know, we get to numbers that they're, they, it shouldn't, it's, it's not the best name in the world, numbers for the book. We've talked about this. The better name would be in the wilderness because it's really all about the wilderness wandering of the children of Israel. Having been delivered out of bondage in Exodus, then in Leviticus, spending a month at, at Mount Sinai, being given the law, being given the sacrificial system, all of which points to Christ. Then they began to head on their journey to the land of promise, and we know what happened. An 11-day journey turned into a 40-year death march because of rebellion. And so, too, we can do the same thing. God has a perfect plan for our lives, and we can rebel against Him and go our own way, and we can miss out on God's highest, as the children of Israel did. And they ended up wandering in the wilderness and murmuring and complaining and, you know, and, and again, just crying out against God. And when He gave them manna, they cried out that manna wasn't good enough. And, And finally, it even got to the leadership. It even got to Miriam and and Aaron as they began to come against Moses. And even Moses, finally, with the murmuring of the children of Israel, he couldn't take it anymore. He got in his flesh, and when he was supposed to speak to the rock, that's a picture of Christ, he smote the rock, and because of that, he was not going to enter into the land of promise. So now we come to the point that all of that generation, for the most part, virtually all of them are now dead. And now they're camped right outside of the land of promise. And as they come to that place, they got the same enemies in front of them again. If you'll remember that, it was the giants in the land that scared them away the first time. Remember the Lord said, that land belongs to you, I want you to enter in. And they got there and they said, oh man, we can't do it. There's giants in the land and they they didn't do it. And because of that, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And it's interesting that at the end of the 40 years, guess where they ended up? Right back in the same spot, facing the exact same enemy. And God said, okay, you know, I almost wonder if they might have got another 40 years, they'd have wimped out again, right? Okay, you don't want to do it this time? I'll wait for the next generation. You know, God's plan is going to come about whether we're involved or not. And it's better if we be involved and God let us use it, be used by Him, amen? And so they come back and finally this time we see them defeat the Canaanites. And now they're, they're camped outside and they've defeated the Amorites and they're getting ready to, to go into the land of promise. And that's when this man by the name of Balak comes along in Numbers 22. Balak's name means destroyer or devourer, excuse me. Balaam means destroyer, Balak means devourer. 
And he's this man who comes up on this mountain. He looks out, and what does he see? He sees this army mounting up, and he's scared to death. He's the head of the Moabites. Now, God had already told the, the, the uh, children of Israel through Moses that the Moabites were to be left alone. They were cousins of Israel. But because he was afraid, instead of going down to the children of Israel and finding out what was going on, he immediately wanted them dead. He wanted them cursed. He was scared to death. And so what does he do? He calls out for this man by the name of Balaam. And he sends all the princes to go get him. As we saw a few weeks ago, that we know that Balaam was a sorcerer. He was a man who, who did enchantments, and, and he would look in entrails, you know, for, to, and he was a diviner, and, and he did all this kind of stuff, and it said those who he blessed were blessed, and those who he cursed were cursed, and we know it was not by the power of God that he did this. So Bala cries out for this guy to come, and we know what happens, if you recall, that before he comes, he offers him a great deal of money, but the Lord forbids him to come. And he did, then the second time he asked the Lord yet again. Remember, the Lord told him not to go, and then when they come back offering more money, he says, well, I'll go ask the Lord again. And we've talked about this. Guys, if we ask God once and he tells us no, that's enough. Amen? We, you know, we don't go back and try to change God's mind. Prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. And we're not to just, you know, go after God till he gives us what we want. But that's kind of what Balaam did, and then finally Balaam went anyway. And when he went, he... He went along the road, and if you remember what happened, the Lord's anger was aroused against him because he was outside of God's will. And remember that I believe it was a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, because it says, the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord who also would receive worship, that's got to be Jesus. And so the angel of the Lord is standing there, and that's Jesus, with a, with a sword in his hand. And it says that when they're coming along, that, that this diviner is spiritually blind. That tells me again that I know he's not getting his information from the Lord. He's spiritually blind, and he doesn't see this angel in front of him, and the donkey starts to, you know, go the other way, and and starts dropping to his knees, and we remember that he continues, Balaam starts wailing on the donkey, and eventually the donkey turns around and starts talking to him, and says, why are you hitting me? And this is the dumbest part I've ever seen. He starts talking back to the donkey. Well, because you went the wrong way. You know, hey, if you're having a conversation with a donkey, well, you probably feel comfortable down at the mall, maybe, but, you know, here's the reality. You know, we don't need to be having conversations with donkeys. And sadly, we see that Balaam is, because again, because he's so focused on money, we know later that the way of Balaam is a guy who's covetous. He's really covetous. He wants money. That's his focus and the passion of his life. He's not worried about being obedient to God. He's more worried about lining his pockets. And we know what happens, that that, that his eyes are open. He falls on his face, and he says he'll go back only when busted. That's not true repentance, by the way. True repentance is not saying you're sorry only because you've been caught. Amen? That's not, repentance is brokenness in your heart, even if you haven't been caught, and coming and making it right before God. He's willing to go back. The Lord says, no, go ahead, but only say what I tell you to say. And he gets there, and he begins to share his own heart. He doesn't listen to the Lord. And we saw how he started again, being, giving, they, they uh, took seven bulls and rams, and they offered them to Baal in a high place. These idol worshippers thought the higher up on the mountain you were, the closer you were to God. Again, looking at things through physical eyes. And so we get to this week's chapter, and we've seen that last week, God's super, supernatural protection over His people, because Balaam and Balak, destroyer and devourer, come together, and they're going to curse the children of Israel, contrary to what God has said. The children of Israel are down there, and they don't even know what's going on above them. And we talked last week how it's really a picture of what's going on around us supernaturally. 
The Bible says in Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So going on all around us is a spiritual battle, and we're not aware of it to that same degree that the children of Israel had no idea that up on this mountain offering to Baal, idol worship, they were looking down wanting to curse him. Devourer and destroyer. And we talked about the fact the Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And speaking of Satan, it says he's a thief who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And this is why I believe, again, a picture of this spiritual battle going on around us. And repeatedly, he wanted to curse the children of Israel, but God would not let him. Remember that? And Balaam kept saying, well, man, come on. And he'd get up on the mountain and instead of cursing them, he would bless them. Why? Because nothing can happen to us unless God allows it. Satan can't do anything that God doesn't let him do. That's an absolute fact. Why? Because God is greater than Satan. He's a defeated foe, and any freedom or abilities he has is because God allows him to have it. Now you might, that's a question for another night, why would God allow Satan to have power? Because God allows us and wants us to have free will and to choose to follow him of our own choice. Amen? That's what God wants. So we come to this week's chapter, and we're going to look at, we saw two of, the, of his uh, prophecies last week, and we're going to see two more this week. And as we look at these two prophecies, the first two, God again had spoken to him, through him, and sometimes people question, well, does that mean that Balaam must have been saved then? Because if God spoke through him, then he must have been a true prophet and a Christian. That's not true, because he spoke through a donkey. Amen? And the donkey's not in heaven. And the reality is that God can speak through even unbelievers sometimes. Now, understand in the Old Testament, we're going to see that this morning, that the the work of the Holy Spirit was different than it is in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for a specific task, and then the Holy Spirit would be removed from them. Remember, Saul was anointed king of Israel, right? And the Holy Spirit was placed upon him. But then what happened when he rebelled? The Holy Spirit was removed from him. Remember when David fell into sin, he said, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, in Acts chapter 2, that all changed. When Jesus went into heaven, he said he's going to leave a helper. And now when we've been born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and he never leaves. Praise God. Amen? But in the Old Testament, you're going to see that the Holy Spirit's upon Balaam. You'll say, wait a minute, then that means he's... No. He's not a follower of God, and it'll prove itself out. We get to chapter 31. Because Balaam is going to continue to rebel against God, even though God reveals himself to him over and over and over again. So tonight's message, we're going to look at blessing his children and cursing of his enemies. Now understand this, God will deal with everyone. And he is either your father or he's your judge. He's either your savior or he's the one that's going to cast you into a a hellfire. Choose today whom you're going to serve. We've all got to deal with the Lord. And it's either going to be, again, we've been adopted into his family or we rejected him. And so we're going to see tonight, as we look through the text, just the difference between those who seek after God and the blessings that come and those who reject him and the cursings that follow. So in spite of, again, Balak, this destroyer, enlisting this help, he wants to curse the people, but God won't allow it because God is in control. And it's a blessing for me to know that, that God is faithful. In Genesis 12, it says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God speaking to Abraham. He said, all your descendants, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Does that still hold true today with Israel? What's the answer? Yes, Yes, it does. 
If you're, it's a good thing we're on Israel's side because even though Israel and the Jewish people are in rebellion against God, He still loves them. He still has an ultimate plan for them. And in the tribulation, there's going to be a huge number of Jews that are going to get saved. There's going to be 144,000 that we know are going to become a mighty witness. And we know that God's going to do that. And that's why it's good that we're on Israel's side. Amen? I don't want, if, if you bless those who bless Israel, right? He's going to bless those who bless Israel. And he's going to curse those who come against Israel. And so we see here that Israel's down at the foot of this mountain, and they're wanting to curse him. And the Lord said in Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and who makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see when God comes. But he shall inherit the parched places in the wilderness that shall not be inhabited. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by waters, which spreads out its roots by a river, and will not fear when he comes." What's your relationship with the Lord? What's the world's relationship with the Lord? You know, again, these guys want to curse God's people. And if you put your faith in a man and you try to curse God's people, you're going to miss out on the Creator. So here's what we're going to see tonight as we look at the blessing and the cursing. We're going to see Balak attempt for a third time to get Balaam to curse Israel. We're going to see the Spirit of God come upon Balaam. We're going to see his third prophecy, again, as he blesses Israel one more time. And then we're going to see a prophecy that points to Jesus Christ. And man, I love the Old Testament because Jesus is all over it. I've had people say to me, you know, the Old Testament's kind of dry and kind of boring. Have you read it? Because here's the reality. It's all about Jesus. When Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, was speaking to the disciples, it says he went from the Word of God, which at that time was only the Old Testament, and he related all things pertaining to himself. So Jesus speaking only from the Old Testament for several hours as they walked on the road to Emmaus. I would love to have been there for that message, amen? And he went back and he just showed them, that's me right there, and here's me in Genesis, here's me in Exodus, here I am in Leviticus, here I am in Numbers. Awesome. And so as we go through, we get a little taste of that. So let's begin. We're going to finish up at the last part of of chapter 23, starting in verse 27. That's where the prophecy starts. And we're going to begin again by looking at Balak's attempt for a third time to get Balaam to curse Israel. Look at verse 27. Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. Now this guy is thick. Balak has no idea. How dumb can you be? The first time he went, God said no. The second time, he came back and said to him, God is not a liar. God will not change his mind. And those are his kids you want him to curse. Now, I mentioned this to you before. If someone came to me and wanted me to curse my kids, they wouldn't have to ask twice because they'd be on the floor after the first one, right? I mean, here's the reality. He keeps coming and saying, well, maybe if we ask him a little different, he'll curse his own children. And he's not listening because Balak has a one-track mind. He's scared to death of Israel. He wants them put to death, and he keeps trying to come at it another way. A man focused on the physical. He's spiritually dead, and he had a deaf ear to the Lord. Again, it's said in 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Even though God's will and plan had clearly been communicated to him, and God is never wrong and he never lies, Balak still took Balaam at another location in hopes that he would change, a change of scenery would change his mind. You know, if he changes the scenery, maybe then it'll change his mind. Changing locations won't change God's will. Amen? Now, here's the application I thought about this. We must learn to face the trials and struggles we're in right in front of us 
And too often what we want to do is we want to move to escape our problems, thinking that a change of scenery, a change of jobs, something may distract, and what it really does ends up distracting us from going head on with the Lord and dealing with what's in front of us. Too often we want to run away, want to run away from our problem. And Balak, rather than repent, what does he do? He seeks to come at it from another direction in hopes of getting his own will done. Look at verse 28. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Now Peor, it's interesting, it means opening or hole. And it's funny because what is Balak looking for? A loophole. God already told him what to do and he's looking for a loophole. You know what? It's scary, but, and you know what? I've done it myself. I've, we've all done it. Sometimes we look for loopholes in the Bible. Well, I know what the Bible says, but this is different because it's me, right? right? But my circumstances are just really unique this time, and maybe there's a verse, and, and so you start running around to every person you know trying to find somebody that will agree with you. You know, it's interesting. There are people that will go from church to church trying to find a pastor that will agree that it's okay for them to do what they're doing. Well, you don't agree? Let me go to another church. You know, and some people come to me and say, well, I've been to eight churches talking to eight pastors, and none of them agree with me. I'm thinking, well, why are you here? Because chances are, you know, unless you're at the Jehovah's Witness Church or something, I'm not going to agree with you either. The reality is that God's Word is the authority, and we can run around, and the Bible says in the end times, people will raise up for themselves ear ticklers, people that will tell them what they want to hear. And what you see here is he's already been told no, and Balak says, well, let's change the scenery. And he goes to this place of a loophole and says, well, maybe if we just change the scenery and we look from a different direction this one last time, maybe then he'll curse him. Maybe then God will give me what I want. Instead of repenting of God's word, he tries to find a loophole in God's word, seeking someone to condone his actions. You know what? Those who love you enough, anybody who condones your actions is not really your friend. Amen? They're not someone who really loves you enough. You know, it's, a, it's really easy just to look the other way and say nothing. Someone who really loves you is going to come to you and say, bro, man, I see what's going on in your life, man. That's, can I pray with you? Can I encourage you? That's just wrong. And what, if we're looking for people that will just condone our lifestyle, you know, we're going to end up out of the church completely, or we're going to be at a church that is so ineffective because its only worry is making sure that the people that come there are never offended. You're not going to have that problem here. Amen. Okay, verse 29. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build for me seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. Now this again shows me he has had a head-on collision with the Lord and here Balaam is setting up idol worship one more time at yet another high place thinking maybe this sacred ground is more sacred than the other ground. Maybe this time God will give me what I want if I ask in the right way. Again, guys, it's not us using the most flowery words to get what we want. Maybe if I had greater, you know, maybe if I prayed in Greek, God would answer my prayers, right? Maybe if I prayed, you know, on my knees in a dark room for four hours straight. Here's the reality. Prayer is a good thing. We need to pray more. But prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes our hearts. And so, we're, you know, it's not the, how eloquent we are that gets God's will done. It's learning to listen to what God says and apply it to our lives. And sadly, these guys instead continue on their own way because of their love of wealth, their love of fame, their love of power, their fear of men. Second Peter 2.15 says, Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Why does Balaam keep doing this? Because what did Balak offer to give him? Remember in the beginning? 
He said, I'm going to give you honor, and I'm going to give you more stuff than you could count. Remember, he even said, if you gave me enough gold and silver to fill up a household, right? And so his motives really are, hey, if I can curse Israel for this guy, if I can just make him happy, he's going to load me up with some money. And you know what? That happens even in ministry today. People will dial down the message and dial down the word and water it all down so that people will come and then maybe they'll give and then, you know, and their motives are impure. And the reality is that we're going to be judged by God one day and that's the one we need to be faithful to. So now we come to, to uh, chapter 24. And we're going to see the Spirit of God coming upon Balaam. This is interesting. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as the other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. So, he knew that repeatedly he kept going up and offering these idols, uh, offering worship to these idols, and it was co- there was no fruit coming from it. And then when he realized finally that God wanted to bless Israel, it says this time he didn't go over and pull the entrails out and start looking at them. He didn't go out and, you know, and try to divine and, and do enchantments anymore. It says he looked to the wilderness. Now, I love this. Because Balaam, again, is looking out at the people, at the children of Israel. So he looks out at the wilderness from this very high place. And what does he see when he looks down? What does he see? The cross. Remember that the children of Israel were encamped in the cross. And so he looks down and he sees a cross in the wilderness. He sees a cross down below him. And I love that because we see a picture. Again, he's looking down. He, he desired to curse him. He had his eyes on him to curse him. But he saw the cross, and God wouldn't let him curse him. I love that. Because that's what happens. The enemy wants to destroy us, but when he looks at us, he sees the cross. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I've been born again, I'm one of his kids, and devil can't do nothing to me if God don't allow it. Amen? And you know what? He can't possess me, he can't over- overwhelm me, he can't overcome me, nothing. He's a defeated foe. And like I always say, the next time he reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Amen? You know, we know where he's going. And here's the, so here's the reality that we can walk around in fear or we can trust that God's faithful and he's in control and we can know that when, the, that when the enemy looks at us or accusations come, that we are encamped in the cross and that we're going to heaven. Now it says there in verse 2, And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes and he saw the cross. And look what happens after he sees the cross. And the Spirit of God came upon him. Man, I like that. Now, even though in his case, I do not believe he's, he, get, he gives his life to God here, and we're going to see that in later chapters, but it is a picture of what happens to us. It's when we look up and we see the cross, and we acknowledge the cross of Christ, and we're born again, that's when the Spirit of God comes upon us. Amen? He looks out, he sees the cross, and then the Spirit of God comes upon him. When we look up and we see the cross of Christ, and we repent of our sin, and we ask Him to be our Savior, that's when the Spirit of God comes upon us. It's the cross that brings forth the Spirit. He saw and said these, again, these things, and and as the Spirit comes upon him, we're going to see this wisdom that comes with it. When you and I walk in obedience to God's command, just like Israel camped according to God's command, we reflect the work of the cross in our lives to a lost and desperate world. Why did they see, why why did he see the cross when he looked down at Israel? Because Israel was walking in obedience. What if they had disobeyed God's plan in the way they were supposed to march? What if they had just camped in the old way they felt like it? He looked down and seen mayhem, right? He looked down and seen just a, you know, 
I've seen a swastika or something, who knows, right? He looked down and seen something other than a cross. And what does he see? He looks down and he sees a cross. Why? Because they're walking in obedience. And I believe the application for us is as we walk in obedience to the Lord, people are going to see Jesus in us. Amen? When we're walking, if we're living like the world and we're all over the place, we're going to harm His name. But when we're walking in obedience to the Lord, God's going to be glorified and people are going to see the Savior in us. You're the only Jesus that some people are ever going to see. You might say, well, I'm the only Christian in my office. Then God put you there for a reason, amen? You know, He doesn't take all the street lights, and, you know, Santa, Santa Cruz County doesn't take every street light and put it all in the same corner. We'd have a real well-lit corner, and the rest of the place would be dark. They take the street lights, and they put them all over the city, so the whole city will be lit. And God does the same with us. He takes Christians. You might say, well, I'm, you know, there's only one or two of us here. Well, that's, in a way, that's good. Because if all the Christians were in the same place, nobody else would get touched, Amen? And so if you look around, you're the only one there. It's by divine appointment, and God wants to use you, and you may be the only Jesus some people ever see. And they looked down, they saw the cross, and because of it, because they're walking in obedience, they saw the Lord. Now look at verse 3. Now watch, he's going to begin to prophesy again. Now remember this time the Holy Spirit has come upon him. So the Spirit is speaking through him, but it's speaking through him no different than speaking through the donkey. All right? He's the man that God uses for the hour, but he's not a man who follows God and endures. And he took up his oracle, or prophecy, and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of a man whose eyes are opened. Isn't it interesting that when he was on the donkey, what was he? He was spiritually what? He was blind. Remember, Jesus is standing right in front of him with a sword in his hand, ready to take him out if he keeps coming, and he's just trotting along, he has no idea, right? And the donkey's like, dude, turn around, right? Now we see this time, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and now what? Look what he says here, whose eyes are opened. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, you're not blind anymore. Once I was blind, but now I see. And as Christians, when we give our lives to Christ and the Spirit lives inside of us, don't we have a whole different perspective on the world now? Amen? Everything's different. Things that used to be important aren't anymore. Our passion is for that which is eternal. Not that we don't make mistakes and get caught up in the world sometimes, but we have a totally different perspective than a lost and dying world that thinks that this is what it's all about. And so the Spirit comes upon him, and all of a sudden this guy who was blind and a donkey had to tell him what to do, now all of a sudden he's going to be a mouthpiece that God's going to use. The world is blind apart from the Holy Spirit opening their eyes, and God may use us to minister to them. Verse 4. The utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with his eyes wide open. Now look what happens to him here. The Spirit comes upon him, and he falls on his face before God. You know, that's a good place to be. Amen? It's a really good place to be. Because that means we're at the end of ourselves. We've truly fallen on our face. He heard the word, he saw a vision of the Almighty, and he fell on his face. And if you look in the original language, it's as if he was in a trance. So he looked on the cross, the Spirit came upon him, his eyes were opened, he heard the word, and he saw a vision of God and fell on his face. Boy, that's a picture of what ought to happen in the life of every believer, right? We look to the cross, the Spirit comes upon us, our eyes are open, we hear his word, we see a vision of our Savior. And again, that's what man, that's what uh, God can do with a man. He broke him, and now he can use him. But remember again, he's still a man who will, will not remain faithful to God. Verse 5. How lovely... Now he's talking about Israel. Now what was he paid to do? To do what to Israel? Curse them. Now watch this. He's not doing a good job. 
right? He's going, to get a, he's going to go in before his boss, and he's going to have his review, and it's not going to be too good. Because look what he does. He's supposed to curse Israel. Look what he says. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. How lovely are your tents. What made their tents lovely? What made their tents lovely? They're encamped in the cross. What was, what was in the center of the cross? The what? The tabernacle, right? And in the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. And who dwelt in the Holy of Holies? The Shekinah glory, God's glory, a picture of the Holy Spirit. So what made these tents lovely? God dwelt there. What makes these tents lovely? God dwells here. Amen? What makes this, the Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And when God sees us, we're his kids. And he dwells within us. And that's what makes us lovely, not how, how much we can bench for us, right? Amen? Not how yoked we are or what kind of shape we're in. Praise God for that, right? God looks at us and he sees us and we're lovely to him because his spirit dwells within us. But again, watch Balaam as he continues to speak. So he says this about Israel. How lovely are your tents, your dwellings, O Israel. Why? Because God dwells there. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? It was that Shekinah glory that made the tents glow. And it's the Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit living inside of us that makes us glow in the dark for Him. Amen? Verse 6 and 7. Like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by a riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters, he shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. Now remember, where are they encamped? They're in what? The desert. What was one of their biggest murmuring and complaints as they were wandering to the desert? What do they moan about more than anything? Water. And I love this, that in the desert, God's glory is with them. They're now about to enter into the promised land. And look what he sees about them. Look at the prophecy about the children of Israel. He looks out and he says to them, Your valleys stretch out like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the water. What is it that makes a plant strong and makes it grow? Good roots. And what makes the root strong? Water. Where do the strongest plants grow? Right by the water. And look what it says here. Like a garden by a riverside, like aloes, which have a sweet aroma. And that's who we are in God's presence. When we're planted by the water and we grow, we're a sweet aroma in God's presence. And what I love about this is what is the water a representation of? It's two things in God's Word. What is it? The Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Remember that when they thirsted in the wilderness, they, the Lord told them to smote the rock, and then what poured out? water. And that water is a picture of the Holy Spirit touching lives, transforming them. If we're planted by rivers of living water, then we're going to grow. Cedars were the strongest, most mighty of all trees. And it says you guys are like cedars. Why? Because you're planted by water. And you're planted beside the waters. And if we're camped out with the Lord and we're spending time in His Word and we're filled with the Holy Spirit that sustains us, we too will grow and bear much fruit. And so he's speaking this of Israel. And he says to them, you're like valleys and gardens and aloes and cedars. You're blessed and you're fruitful. You're planted. And it says they're planted by who? Planted by the Lord. The Lord plants them. I like that. You know what? We've been planted by the Lord. 
And then He waters us with His Spirit, and He plants us where we can grow and He can use us. So next time you think about moving or going or doing something different, you make sure that God's the one pulling up your roots, not you. Amen? Because He plants us where we are, and He wants to use us where we are, and we need to make sure that we've heard from the Lord. Do not be moved by your circumstances, but be moved by the Holy Spirit. He shall pour water from His buckets, and His seed shall be in many waters. Now the seed is a representation of what in the Bible? Parables. A, a sower went out and sowed seed, and the seed is the what? It's the Word of God. And the Word of God is then watered and it grows. And so again, he's looking out and he sees nothing but blessings on Israel. He's supposed to be cursing Israel. Now who's listening to this? Balak. He's just, right? Dude, this is the third time. I, man, I've killed 21 rams, 21 bulls. I've been following you around. I sent princes after you. I gave you all this money and you just keep blessing them. Dude, you're killing me. Now Balak... Should have repented at this point, amen? But instead, again, we see God's mighty hand. And look what it says here. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Now, Agag is the name of the king of the Amalekites. And it's believed that it's much like a pharaoh to the Egyptians. Because 300 years later, we know, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit when we get to the Amalekites, that Agag was the king of the Amalekites, and the Amalekites were supposed to be destroyed off the face of the earth. And what did Saul do? He brought Agag back with him. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he says here, his, his, his king shall be higher than Agag. Remember that this was someone who was elevated in a high position like the Pharaoh of Egypt. But his king, the king of Israel, will be greater than the king of the Amalekites. Who's saying this? Balaam. Balaam's saying his king's going to be greater than any king on the earth. Balaam's over there like, shut up. You're making things worse for me over here, man. I paid you, and all you're doing is talking about how great Israel's going to be. Again, because God is in control, not men. And it says there, and his kingdom shall be exalted above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all names. Now, let's just talk about Amalek just real quick. Those of you who have studied 1 Samuel, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Don't turn there. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul's the king. Why did they pick Saul to be king? Remember, they wanted to have a king like what? Like everyone else had. And so they picked Saul because he was yoked. He was the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the day, right? He was big. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He started off humble. He started off well and even went out and won some victories. But they told him, if you pick this guy to be king, he's going he's to enslave you. He's going to take from you. He's going to bring nothing but destruction upon you. And they said, give us a king anyway. Remember this? Why? Because God was their king and they chose a man instead. And then Saul was told to go out and wipe out the Amalekites. Why? Because Amalek, and we're going to talk about this in the end, they get cursed one more time in this chapter, but the Amalekites were running behind the children of Israel and picking off the weak people. They're wandering through the wilderness. You know, you got a long line of folks when you got three million people, right? And so they're going through the wilderness, and, the, and these Amalekites were waiting behind them. And they'd go down and get the invalids and the weak people, and they'd kill them and pick them off and steal from them. And the Lord says in Deuteronomy, I've seen what you've done, Amalek, and I'm not going to forget. And you know what? I'm going to bring judgment upon you. So 300 years later, Saul's told to be the guy to go and wipe them out. Now, Amalek or the Amalekites are a type or a picture of the flesh in the Bible. And he says, go wipe out the flesh completely. Don't leave one of them standing. So what does Saul do? He goes out and he kills some of them. Not all of them. 
And he brings back the spoils, and he brings back the livestock, and he brings back Agag, the king of the flesh. It's kind of like, I just became a Christian, and I'm, Lord, I'll give up all the other stuff in my life, but there's this one pet sin of mine that's kind of my favorite, and I want to bring that one home with me, right? That's just the one thing, I'm holding on to this one, Lord, I got a chain on it, but I'm going to take it with me everywhere I go. And that's what happens, and remember, Samuel comes walking up, and he sees Saul there, and, and as he walks up, it says he hears bleeding of sheep in the background. Do you guys remember that? Do you don't think God doesn't have a sense of humor? He comes walking up, and he hears, right? And, and Saul goes, I did exactly what God told me to do. I did exactly. And he, what's the sheep I'm hearing here, Saul? What's that all about? Oh, it was the people. They told me to bring them back. And oh, by the way, we're going to offer them a sacrifice. Right? When confronted with sin, we can do one of three things. Make excuses, accuse others, or repent. What does Saul do? It was them. It was the woman thou gavest me, right? Pulling at him, right? Point at somebody, but don't repent yourself. And we know what ends up happening. Agag comes out, and he sees old Samuel standing there. And he thinks, oh, whew, it's just Samuel. He's an old man by now. What does Samuel do? He picks up what? A sword, and he chops Agag into small pieces. That's what it says. Read in the Bible. It's in the Bible. He chops him into small pieces. And isn't it interesting that the king of the flesh is put to death with what? The sword. And what's the sword a picture of? God's word. And so we see here that Amalek was doomed all the way back here. The curse came upon them. Now, one last point. You know how Saul died? What, who brought the report of Saul's death to David? An Amalekite. Isn't that interesting? Because if you don't put the flesh to death, it will, it will bring about your own. Amen? If he'd wiped out the Amalekites, there'd been no Amalekite there to kill him. But instead, the report of his death came back because he didn't kill them all because he disobeyed God. Now, the Amalekites, again, we see here that, that Agag... Your kingdom is going to be greater than Agag, greater than the king of the Amalekites. Verse 8. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, as a lion who, sh who shall rouse him. Now again, can you imagine Balak listening to this? The Lord brings him out and they're going to be strong as a wild ox. And look what it says here. Is, talking about Israel, they're going to consume their enemies, they're going to break their bones, they're going to pierce them with arrows. He's like, shut up. Dude, they're right down there. Man, I, I, how much money do I have to give you? And look what you're doing to me, man. You're killing me. And then look at what it says here. He says, he bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Now let me ask you, you don't have to be too sharp to know that if a lion is laying down, you don't want to pull his tail. I'm thinking that's not a good thing. Not a, not a smart plan, I'm thinking no, right? And it's saying here that Israel is like a lion, who shall rouse him? You want to mess with Israel? You're messing with a lion. You're grabbing a lion by the tail, and you're going to get tore up. Now, Balak's sitting here going, I got nothing left, right? He keeps trying to go a different way. He keeps trying to find another path, and all he gets, he's hearing over and over and over again is God's hand is on Israel. So you need to either get on their side and get right with God or you're going to face the music. And so he lies down as a lion. Who shall stir him up? And look at the verse says, Blessed is he who blesses you and cursed is he who curses you. Now wait a minute. He was just being paid to curse him. And look what he says. Blessed is he who blesses you and cursed is he who curses you. What do you think the chances of him cursing Israel now are? Zero. So he repeats what God had promised to Abraham. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. 
And Balak is sitting there knowing, I'm done. I've been defeated. So Balaam called for him to curse Israel. And instead, the Spirit came upon him and he pronounced God's blessing upon them instead. You know what? If God is in it, then it will, bring, it will be fruitful. It will not be destructive. And so we see here that they want, he wants them to curse and he cannot. Verses 10 through 14. Now watch Balak's response. I think you already know what it's going to be. But let's read it anyway. Balak's anger was aroused, I guess so, against Balaam. And he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And look, you've, you've bountifully blessed them these three times. And in, and in that culture, when you banged your hands together, I got your attention, somebody woke up. When you bang your hands together, it was a sign of ultimate disgust and anger. And so Balak comes, I, I called you here to make things better, and you make things worse. Isn't it interesting that when we speak the truth about the Lord sometimes, the response that we get is not always love. Often it's anger. Amen? Often we pronounce blessing and we share the love of God and we speak the truth and people respond just like Balak. I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me that. Man, I, you know, hey, don't, oh, I don't want to hear that, right? You ever had people re- react violently in anger when you share Jesus with them? Who's had, who's had that happen before? I've had it happen many times. I had three or four different people that I knew that if I walked near them and they thought I was going to say Jesus, they'd get mad at me. You know what, bro? Don't talk to me about that right now. I'm like... Dude, I was going to ask you what you're doing for life. I mean, you know, they just get all uptight. And you know what it is? When they see you, they know that you have a love for God. And, you know, when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks the loudest is usually the one you hit, right? The one that's responding with the greatest amount of anger is usually the one being convicted. And Balak, man, he's so bent out of shape. I called you here to curse those guys. You were my last hope. You're the only guy I know to turn to. I've given you... And that's exactly what happens here. Balak, you're chapped, man. You're on the wrong side, right? And here's the reality, you can keep coming after God. This destroyer, this picture, this type of Satan, he's a defeated foe. Verse 11, now therefore flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact the Lord has kept you back from honor. You ever heard that before? You know, because you follow God, you're going to miss out. That's what he's saying here. Because you chose to honor God, you're going to miss out. Dude, I I had a truckload of money for you. I had a big house. I was going to make you second in my kingdom, but because you wouldn't go with the program, look what God has kept you from. Look what it says there. He says the Lord has kept you back from honor. And there's this thing that goes on in the world today that we think sometimes that, well, maybe I can compromise a little bit. You know, Lord, I don't want to give up everything. And here it's cost him fame. It's cost him fortune. It's cost him honor. And the enemy tells us the same today. Look how much you've given up for the Lord. Look at all the riches you've given up. Look at all the fun. Look at all the fame. I love the quote by Jim Elliott. Must you know it? A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What are we giving up? Deck chairs on the Titanic. Amen? It's a sinking ship, the thing's going down, and we're fighting over, my deck chair is nicer than yours, and it's, oh, it's a ship, man. I'm just like, dude, this ship's going down, don't even sweat it. Now, I have to confess, it's not always easy. 
You know, I, you know, I'll be transparent with you for a minute. And, I don't, and again, don't take this wrong. I don't want to come across like I'm some martyr. I'm totally blessed. But I have to tell you that, you know, a couple years ago we sold our nice house and we moved into a, a mobile home. And, and I'd stay out of the neighborhood because every time I go through there, my kids are like, man, man you know, it's kind of nice when we lived here. We all had our own room. We had neighbors. And now we're living in a trailer and, you know, that kind of thing. And here's the reality, though. It's good for us as a family. And we're blessed. We're not out in the rain. We're fine. But you know what? Sometimes, I have to confess, it is hard. You know, sometimes you look and you think, you know, if I just, you know, it would be so much easier if I didn't, you know, have to, I don't have to be full speed for God, do I? I can, right? You know, that, there's that temptation. The enemy tells you, you can still serve God and pursue the bucks. It's all right. You know what, though? The more you fall in love with the Lord, the less those stuff of this world is going to matter. Amen? And you know what? When you give up things for God, you gain everything. It's not a get. You don't give. You're not giving up anything. Again, it's a bigger pile of dirt, right? My pile of dirt's bigger than your pile of dirt, right? And and that's really all it is. And when you let go of it, and you just get find your peace and your satisfaction in the Lord, what a blessing it is. And again, it's not always easy because the enemy will always be right there telling you, "Man, look how much you've given up. Look what you've done." Well, next time he says that, remember this. Amen. How much has he done? What did he do for us? And a man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Nobody's going to stand before God on Judgment Day and wish that they had a little bit bigger house. Nobody's going to stand before God on Judgment Day and wish that they had played a little more golf. Nobody's going to stand before God on Judgment Day, you know, and wish that they could bench press more or had had that plastic surgery or whatever. You know what I mean? All these things that we think are important today are nothing in eternity. And it's when we get that eternal perspective, we just let that stuff go. And here's the enemy right here, right? Telling him, look, dude, God kept you back. You followed him. You obeyed him. Dude, you lost the fame. You lost the honor. You lost the money. Nice choice, right? Well, praise God that our riches are those that cannot perish. I'm glad that I don't store up riches that can be lost or stolen or, can be, or the stock market can lose them all or whatever it might be. Store up riches where, where moth nor dust, and nothing can come in and steal it and take it away. Store up riches in heaven, and you'll have them for eternity. Verse 12. So Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad on my own will. What the Lord says, that I must speak. Now, it sounds like he's being really noble here, but if you look in the t- intent, you know what he's trying to do? Get out of it. What he's trying to say is, look, I just have to, you know, I don't have any choice here. He's making me say this stuff, and so I'm just doing what I have to do. We're going to find out that this is true in the next couple of chapters. Because he's not going to be able to curse the children of Israel, so you know what he's going to do? He's going to come up with a plan to make them fall. He's going to pull Balak aside and go, hey dude, I couldn't curse him, but I got a plan. Check it out. Now, would the money thing still work if we do it this way? I mean, that's really his motives. His motives are all about the bucks. Verse 14, and now indeed I am going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. So he calls them aside and I will advise you. And actually he's going to advise them about how to go after the children of Israel in the next chapter. But watch what happens here. This is a great prophetic word. 
So he took the oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes were opened, again, he's speaking of himself, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with his eyes wide open. Once again, he's heard from the Lord. God has impacted him. And you know, the sad part is, it shows how close you can come to God and never truly know him. Because he's been knocked down, his eyes have been opened, but he still has not truly given his life to the Lord. But look at this. I see him. How many of you have a Bible with a, a capital H there? Raise your hand. You know why? Guess who that is? Word up. It's Jesus. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. I see him, but not now. He sees one who is coming, and who is coming afar off. I see him, but not now. Now look at, verse, now look at the rest of this. He says, A star shall come out of Jacob. The word there for star is blazing and shining. It can also mean prince. But it's a reference to the coming Messiah. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And guess what? This is the very verse, along with Daniel chapter 9, with the 70 weeks of Daniel, that the wise men used to know when the Messiah came. Because it says a star shall come out of Jacob. Jacob is who? Israel. So they knew, based on the 70 weeks of Daniel, that the time was up and that they needed to start looking for a star. And the wise men started looking in the sky over Israel. And they knew when there was a new star in the sky that that meant the Messiah had been born. And they went and traveled there. And it was from this verse right here in Numbers. Tell me Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. He's all over it. Amen? A star. And he is the bright and morning star. It says there, a scepter shall raise out of Israel. The word there for scepter, another messianic reference, speaks of royalty or kingdom. He's a light shining in the darkness. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. It's about the Messiah, and it's all pointing to Jesus. And look what it says the Messiah will do. He will batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. The tumult there is for is another word for uprising. Now, it's interesting. He's talking to who? Balak is the king of what? Moab. This guy paid him to curse, and he turns around and says, Bright morning stars coming. And he's going to wipe out the brow of Moab. Now, in one sense, he's speaking of it being in a far distant future. And Balak may have even been relieved because where was Israel at that time? They're camped right down here. He's scared spitless. They're going to come up the hill and just wipe them out. And he's talking about happening in a far distant... He's like, wait a minute, this isn't going to happen for a while? It's a far far off? Well, that's kind of good because I'll be dead by then anyway, right? And in some ways, he may have been trying to earn his favor, says there, and destroy all the sons of the tumult, the uprising, this uprising that was happening right then about the children of Israel. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also his enemy shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly, out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Who are the Edomites descendants of? Who knows? Esau. Why is that significant? Who is Esau's twin brother? Jacob. Who's ja- Jacob's the father of Israel. And it says here, what does it say? It says when that bright and morning star comes, the children of Esau are going to be wiped out. The Bible says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated from their mother's womb. Now that doesn't mean that God uh, predestines people to hell. What it means is it means that God knew the choices Esau was going to make even before he was born. Amen? 
And he knew it, and because he knew it, it says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, and now this prophecy comes forth that when the bride and morning star comes, all the descendants of Esau are going to be wiped out, the children of Edom. Verse 20. Then he looked on Amalek. This is another oracle. And he says, And he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but he shall be last until he perishes. Again, we talked about the Amalekites. We already know that the Amalekites, a type of the flesh, were wiped out, complete, were wiped out completely later. First Samuel 15, he wiped out most of them. In First Chronicles chapter 4, the sons of Simeon went in, and the Amalekites were no more. God's prophecy was fulfilled. It didn't happen by the hand of Saul because he disobeyed, but it did happen in God's timing. Fulfillment, fulfillment of this prophecy right here in chapter 20. Balaam speaking, says Amalek's going to be wiped out. Verse 21, then he looked at the Kenites, and he took up his oracle and said, Firm is your dwelling place, your nest is set in a rock. Nevertheless, Cain, that's another word for the Kenites, shall be burned. How long until Asher comes and carries you away captive? Now, the Kenites, who was a Kenite? Who remembers? A famous guy who was a Kenite. The uncle of Moses, or father-in-law of Moses. Father-in-law of Moses, what was his name? Jethro. Jethro was the one that came to Moses and said, you can't do this by yourself. Remember that? Moses, man, you're standing here all day and night. You need to get some people to help you. So there were some of the Kenites that went into Israel, but then there were those that went with the Amalekites and the Midianites and started following with those guys. And those are the ones he's talking about here. And it's interesting how, how exact this is because guess what happened? They're, they were inset in a rock. They were surrounded by a, a strong fortress, but guess what happened? It says Asher will carry you away captive. Well, guess what happened? A few hundred years later, Asher, or Assyria, came and wiped out the Kenites. Isn't it amazing how the Bible is 100% accurate, right? I love the Bible. If it says it, that settles it, amen? And we see here in God's Word yet another proof text for the inerrancy of God's Word because exactly what happened from a guy who was talking no better than a donkey, right? Balaam, who wasn't even walking with God, God used his words. We're almost done here. Then he took up his oracle and said, Alas, we shall live... Who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus, and they shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber, and so shall Amalek until he perishes. Well, guess what happened? Guess who came up from Cyprus? Alexander the Macedonian, the son of Philip, came up and smite the Assyrians. The Assyrians, again, had, had attacked uh, Babylon, and then the Medes and Persians had taken over from them, a man by the name of King Darius. You remember that name? King Darius was the one who threw Daniel in the lion's den. You remember that? And again, all of this is fulfillment hundreds of years later of what was said in this text. God rocks. I love the Bible because you study it. People say, I read the Bible. I didn't get much out of it. You did not read the Bible. You read something about it. You didn't read it. Amen? You know, I'm studying it. I, you know, because, but because you guys are, are faithful and obedient to give, I get to study the Bible like 40 to 50 hours a week. And let me just tell you, the more I study it, the less I know. Because it's so thick, and it's so deep, and it's so awesome. And we can study and study and study, and it's just greater and greater and greater. Amen? Last verse. So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. And it looks here like Balaam, the devourer, and Balak, the destroyer, went their own ways. But sadly, it's not going to be the last time we see these guys. Because Balaam, unable to curse the children of Israel is going to divine a plan to tempt them with women. I'm going to see it next week. And he's going to tempt them into harlotry and idol worship. And isn't that break your heart? Because here they are encamped in obedience, 
And while they're encamped in obedience, they're a testimony to those around them. They're getting ready to head into the land of promise. They've been wiping out their enemies, and temptation's going to come, and they're going to fall for it. How many of you can relate to that? Amen? You're walking in obedience. You're being used mightily by God. The enemy knows it. He breathes temptation to draw you away, to render your testimony ineffective, to make you not valuable at work. So we can learn from the example here that we've seen that that God is faithful and He's in control, that the devil can't do anything to you unless God allows it, to know and understand that that as we're obedient, people are going to see Christ in us. And as they see Christ in us, it's going to, he'll be glorified. It'll be an opportunity to be a testimony for him. And even when the world comes against us, and even when the world curses us, and there'll be temptations to say, you've given up too much for God. And you know, you could have had fame, and you could have had this. A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. May we keep our eyes on eternity. The real prize is, is not here on this earth. This stuff is all passing away. We're just passing through. If you have to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, amen? You know, when you die, that's it. He who dies with the most toys is still dead. Amen? And so, may we get our eyes on him. Be focused on eternity. And if God can use a man like Balaam, who didn't even know him, how mightily could God use us if we'll just let him? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are a God of love and grace and mercy. We thank you that you're a God of second, third, and one thousandth chances. We thank you, Lord, that even if we've blown it, you can still use us. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here tonight that's really been struggling in their walk with you, that they would know it's not about how, but it's about who. It's not, it's not what we do and the plans we make, but Lord, it's turning to you and falling in love with you and knowing you in an intimate way. Help us, Lord, to look at the, the world from an eternal perspective, to see through your eyes, to love what you love and to hate what you hate. And Lord, I pray that we would be men and women that you can speak mightily through. The Lord, that we would be available for your Holy Spirit to minister through us. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we just thank you for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.